Anna Casper is new to downtown Milwaukee, and she came here looking to start over. Well, I moved here in February from Chicago for a fresh start, and I had all these plans that I wanted to do and experience in Milwaukee life. Sadly, so far, none of the stuff that I had planned or envisioned has happened. But within a month of moving here, history intervened. When I moved here, I started seeing someone, and then less than a month later, restaurants, bars, concerts, sporting events, or anything fun got shut down because of the health department. But Milwaukee's shelter-in-place order disrupted more than just Anna's love life. It also upended her job. She had moved here to work as the director at a YMCA extended care academy, a kind of aftercare program for kids. And these academies are located in schools throughout the city. So when the Milwaukee public school system went virtual, all of these academies closed as well. Well, a big way the health department has affected my job is they closed down a lot of the schools that the Y was in charge of programming for. So that's why we made either ELAs, which is Extended Learning Academy, or ECAs, which is Extended Care Academies, at different Y locations or hospitals or schools. Because of the pandemic, Anna now works at a Y location that is based out of a hospital. But even here, Milwaukee's public health department continued to shape the nature of her job. Now, her primary responsibility is enforcing many of the guidelines mandated by the city for her staff and students. The advice given to us was about the masks, the social distancing, cleaning cleaning procedures. I think in my case, since I'm at a hospital and at least half of the kids that I interact with every day, their parents are doctors or nurses. So these kids came into this camp already knowing how severe COVID is and having them wear a mask isn't isn't hard. Knowing that uh, these kids are under the age of 10, they like to complain that their mask is itchy or it's too hot, but I just like to remind them that I want to keep you safe, so I like you to keep me safe. And usually that, that triggers something in them, and they're all, oh, yes, you're right. Though it has been a ton of work for Anna to keep track of all these regulations, she does believe that the health department's guidance is the reason her staff and students have so far stayed healthy. I believe they are effective because, like, knock on wood, we haven't had any, so far, any case of COVID in my camp. And I believe that, like, God forbid if something happens, we know the, uh, the science behind how masks work and how the virus spreads because of the health department. While we all might not work at a hospital or with kids, I think there are aspects of Anna's story that we can all recognize. The advice and guidance of public health professionals have come to dominate our daily lives. You can't go anywhere without seeing someone wipe down countertops with disinfectant, marks on the floor showing you what six feet apart looks like, and the constant notice that masks are now required. And the story of how Milwaukee's public health department came to have such a prominent place in our daily lives is a fascinating one. It's a story not just about disease, but about working conditions, neighborhood sanitation, and party politics. It's a story about what government can do and what local government is for. And it's a story we're going to tell today. From the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee's Department of History, I'm Chris Cantwell. And in partnership with the Milwaukee County Historical Society, this is The Healthiest City, a podcast about Milwaukee 
and its pandemics. So last week on the show, we talked about how part of the reason Milwaukee did so well during the 1918 influenza pandemic was because they learned some hard lessons early. If you haven't listened to that first episode, you might want to start there. Because Maddie and Olivia talked about how the cultural and ethnic assumptions of the city's health leaders turned a minor smallpox outbreak into a major catastrophe in 1894. Fixing this mess wouldn't be easy. And before it was all over, Milwaukee witnessed something of a political revolution in the process. Our pod historian's Bailey Green. Hello, I'm Bailey Green. And Roman Luloff. And I'm Roman Luloff. Have the story. William Kempster got his job back as public health director in 1894. Though he had been impeached in the aftermath of the smallpox riots, the city was so desperate for someone to lead its embattled public health department that it quickly turned to him again. That's right. And in the same way Kempster's first stint as director involved a great deal of drama, Milwaukee's attempt to remake its public health department was just as interesting. Just like other cities across the country, Milwaukee was in the process of improving its health department's response to public health crises after the epidemic in 1894. Some of these new initiatives were successful and others were not. For example, in the year following the epidemic, the health department officially recommended to the city that all unnecessary loud noises should be stopped in the interest of reducing public fear and anxiety. This included noises like clock towers, train whistles, and even some emergency bells, which would endanger the public more than benefit it. According to Judith Levitt, who is a professor emerita in the history of medicine and author of the book, The Healthiest City, Kempster was culturally intolerant and elitist. Because of this, the public was not supportive of his vaccination and forced hospitalization policies. When he was removed from his position by the Common Council in 1894, the health department struggled to regain its authority it had under Kempster. However, this setback was only temporary. Judith Levitt provides some insight into this fluke. Kempster himself comes back in a a year, um, and he is able, without actually a lot of to-do about it, to reestablish some of his own policies. So it's pretty quickly that the health department gets back on its feet and continues to do its work on a daily basis. The support for public health Levitt mentioned that contributed to the success of Milwaukee's health department starts to become noticeable at the beginning of the socialist era. But who were the socialists, and when did they come to influence politics in Milwaukee? Ultimately, the ideas that came to shape socialism emerged in Milwaukee with the arrival of German immigrants to the city during the 19th century. The Socialist Party of America was officially formed by Milwaukee natives Victor Berger and Frederick Heath in 1901. After this, support for socialism began to spread throughout the city quickly. This was partially due to its affiliation with the labor movement. By 1904, socialists had won 46 of Milwaukee's common council seats, claiming a majority. Kevin Aubing, who is an archivist at the Milwaukee County Historical Society, can explain more. By 1910, uh, Milwaukee voters 
were ready for a change. And the socialists, they swept into office. Uh, uh, Emile Seidel was elected the first socialist mayor in the U.S. Uh, they had control of the city council. Um, Victor Berger was elected to the U.S. Congress, the first, you know, first socialist to be elected to, to Congress. Um, and so, I mean, it was a landslide for, for the socialists. Emil Seidel's election as Milwaukee's first socialist mayor in 1910 marks a significant turning point in the politics of the city. Socialism in Milwaukee did not begin with Emil Seidel, nor did it end with him. What makes 1910 a turning point for socialism in Milwaukee was the overwhelming support the socialists achieved over Democrats and Republicans combined. This support gave Seidel's administration a great amount of political force. Kevin Abing explains. True to their word, they ushered in, uh, uh, you know, as efficient and honest a government as you could as you could want, uh, you know, and they were stressing, you know, really, you know, bread and butter issues, uh, you know, like, you know, clean water and, and safe streets, better lighting, you know, for streets uh, and that kind of thing. I mean, they weren't these wild eyed radicals that uh, that the Democrats and Republican opponents portrayed them as. I mean, they were, they were, you know, as fiscally conservative as you could possibly get because, you know, they instituted a pay-as-you-go system. Uh, they, you know, they went through, they created a board of efficiency to go through and eliminate duplicate uh, uh, responsibilities and, and, you know, streamline budgeting processes, and that kind of thing. And, and, and like I said, it was as, as you know, straightforward and honest a government as you could possibly get. The socialists also won a majority in the Common Council. This helped Seidel and the socialists institute an array of reforms, many addressing public health. Judith Levitt explains the public appeal for the socialist health initiatives when they came to power. They come into power uh, with a, uh, a um, platform of free medical care for all citizens of Milwaukee. They helped to reestablish the isolation hospital and get it going more, giving it more money. And they establish, as you uh, know, the infant welfare program and and do a lot to actually further expand on health department policies. The first isolation hospital in Milwaukee was completed in 1879 to replace the city's pest house in response to the 1876 to 1877 smallpox outbreak. The hospital was quickly considered to be a public nuisance by the city's residents since it lacked both sewer and water. By the time smallpox struck in 1894, the isolation hospital was at the center of the public's dissent. It was not considered an improvement and many residents resisted forced hospitalization there. The absence of an adequate hospital was still a problem once Seidel was elected mayor. In an address to the Common Council on April 19, 1910, Seidel stated, the present isolation hospital facilities are, in the words of the health commissioner, a disgrace to the city of Milwaukee. The citizens, in their generosity, have approved of a bond issue at the last election. It is your duty to take immediate steps in the matter, calling in professional advice. Where it concerns the life and health of our loved ones, a broad policy should guide you, that of attaining the best money can buy. 
One year after their victory in 1910, the socialists had built a modern isolation hospital. In addition, the socialists were able to form a child welfare commission in 1911 to address infant mortality rates. The idea for the commission in Milwaukee was based off a plan devised by Wilbert Phillips, who was a socialist from New York. Phillips visited Milwaukee following Seidel's election in 1910, and his goal was to create neighborhood-based child health clinics focused on preventative care. Phillips was able to rally support for the clinics among both socialists and anti-socialists alike. The first child health clinic was built in the 14th Ward, which had the highest infant mortality rate in the city. At the time, the ward was heavily populated by Polish immigrants who expressed hostility to authorities during the 1894 smallpox outbreak. So one of the Child Health Commission's main objectives was to garner support from Polish community leaders. The clinic appealed to mothers and their children, offering classes to mothers focusing on preventative care. The commission also tried to end the practice of giving beer and coffee to teething infants in order to prevent future illness. Despite working to better the whole community, there was still some political resistance to socialist reforms that took place in Milwaukee. Seidel's administration was short-lived. In order to combat the socialist movement in Milwaukee, Republicans and Democrats joined together to back Gerard Bading's run for mayor. This effort was successful when Bading was elected mayor in 1912. Bading and his supporters wanted to either completely dismantle the Child Welfare Commission or absorb the program into the health department. This would prove to be a difficult task, as the commission still had nonpartisan support from the public. An article from May of 1910, called An Excellent Commission, illustrates this support. The Child Welfare Commission, named by Mayor Sedell, could with difficulty be improved upon. The appointments are above politics and dictated wholly by the special requirements of the work to be undertaken. Had the mayor more frequently exercised his appropriate power in this manner, his administration would have escaped much criticism. Despite this, the Child Welfare Commission continued to expand even after the socialist majority was voted out of political offices. By 1920, there were 14 child welfare clinics in Milwaukee. The services the commission offered also expanded. In 1913, courses on child welfare and disease were offered to teenage girls known as little mothers, and the clinics began to offer prenatal care in 1916. What made socialist reforms, such as the child welfare clinics, gain wide support despite political opposition to the socialists was the fact that there was a broader interest amongst the fragmented political parties to support policies that promoted public health. The article, An Excellent Commission, goes on to say, Let us hope that the common spirit of humanity, which has brought our warring political tribes together in this instance, may operate on other occasions in the future when the problem or the policy and one that transcends any consideration for partisanship or politics. Judith Levitt elaborates even further. Cooperation that the socialist governments were able to establish between labor business, progressives, <laughs> uh, Republicans and Democrats really built a coalition in the city that just allowed everybody to accept something, you know, we may have trouble accepting today because we're so divided on these kinds of issues today. But then the city of Milwaukee was really very united in wanting the government to do good by its people. They were willing to pay for some of these uh, 
uh, efforts. That is, there were expenditures made by the Common Council in the 20th century. There were in the 19th century. Remember, Milwaukee bit, built a sewer system, a water system in the 19th century. Those were hugely expensive operations. Um, so they had already spent a lot of money and knew how to do it. But uh, they even went further under the socialists uh, and uh, were willing to put more public money into government expenditures because they believed those expenditures uh, would help the city be healthier, which it did, which they did, um, and help uh, the community thrive. So in an environment where there is resistance to socialism, progressive socialist reforms were embraced. Even after the socialists lost their majority in 1912, many of their proposed reforms were supported. However, the loss of their majority did mean that the city was not willing to go as far as the socialists were willing to go. But the appeal of socialism, at least their reforms, was due to their commitment to public welfare and health, which was often linked to labor. This does not deviate much from many of the progressive era goals of promoting morality, economic reform, and social welfare during the early 1900s. Seidel's administration increased the minimum wage for city workers, created an eight-hour workday for municipal workers, and increased the health department's inspections of factories, schools, and milk plants. In the same address to the Common Council that discussed the condition of the isolation hospital, Seidel hinted toward the association between the welfare of labor and public health. He stated, The workers of this city are its most valuable asset. Your attention should be directed to the passage of such measures as will promote the well-being of this class of citizen, safeguard health, check any tendency to encroach upon such few rights as the workers still enjoy, and whenever possible, extend to them the opportunity of life. The health of laborers was not limited to the conditions within a factory, but also the home, consumer products, and the physical and moral sanitation of the city of Milwaukee. The socialists attempted to tackle numerous public health and welfare issues. This could include Seidel's crusade for moral health, which would include his regulation of taverns, closure of brothels and gambling halls, and the creation of a committee to investigate the causes of childhood delinquency. This is in addition to increasing the number of health department inspections of factories, schools, and milk plants. The idea that the flu could be so destructive was far from the minds of Milwaukeeans in the early 1900s. Instead, tuberculosis was a major threat. In fact, tuberculosis accounted for two-thirds of the deaths from infectious diseases in Milwaukee in 1911. The Healthologist Bulletin from 1911 reported 1,150 active tuberculosis cases and 49 deaths in the month of March. Comparatively, there were only 21 reported deaths over a 13-month period from grippe, or what is now known as the flu. The flu was not a reportable disease until 1918, and as you will learn in the next episodes, health department regulations would only increase. Health controls, such as placarding and inspections, would soon become more strict, and the regulation of businesses and factories would assume new heights as Milwaukee faced the influenza pandemic in 1918.
Bailey Ann Green is a PhD student at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, while Roman Luloff is getting his master's degree in public history. Well, our show today was produced by Bailey Green and Roman Luloff with help from myself and the students of History and New Media at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. The episode featured material from the Milwaukee County Historical Society and the Encyclopedia of Milwaukee. Music for this episode is by Poddington Bear and the Blue Dot Sessions, while our concluding song is called The Influenza Blues and comes from a recording held by the Library of Congress's American Folklife Center. John Harry was our voice for Emil Seidel, and Haley Bricky was the voice of the article An Excellent Commission. Extra special thanks this week goes out again to Kevin Abing at the Milwaukee County Historical Society for helping us access the archive during a pandemic, and to historian Judith Levitt, whose book The Healthiest City gave us both information and the title for our show. The Healthiest City is a production of the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee's Department of History and the Milwaukee County Historical Society. For more information about the show, including images and photographs from the era, check out milwaukeehistory.net slash podcast. And thanks for listening. This song was sung by H. Johnson for the Library of Congress on Clemens Farm, April the 15th, 1939.